What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today is June 24th, 2020, and I am excited to have Cara Jackson of Bellwether Education on the show this week to talk all about the role of evaluation in schools and how we need to change our evaluative mindset if we want to truly improve the experiences of all students. Before sharing my interview with Cara, I just wanted to talk briefly about evaluation. Most people generally understand that since the 80s, schools have been very focused on evaluation and assessment, and that focus has very often been applied with a deficit lens in mind. For instance, in 2001, due to the struggles the school district of Philadelphia faced by the metrics Pennsylvania had determined would be used to evaluate schools, the state decided to strip the city of its local control, a decision that lasted almost 16 years. This deficit view of evaluation isn't just applied to whole districts though. This mindset makes its impact known to individual schools, teachers, and students. But there is a different way that we can think about evaluation and assessment. One that isn't oriented towards punishment and towards deficits, but rather a system that is built with growth in mind. Cara has a wide variety of experience with school evaluation, and the picture she paints regarding how we can change evaluation for good is vital listening. If you aren't already subscribed to Education Policy Weekly, then make sure you do so on whatever podcast app you use. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ByJohnPhillips. This interview with Cara was recorded last year, but our need to rethink evaluation is even more important following COVID-19. Without further ado, Cara Jackson of Bellwether Education. Cara, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So to start off, I'd love to bring in an idea that was the main concept that I was grappling with when I decided to start this podcast. And I think that we as a country are kind of challenged with understanding going forward. And that comes down to there are some people who see education as an input rather than an output. So that if you have a poor performing school, that that poor performing school is the reason that kids aren't learning instead of thinking about the poor performing school as an output, as something that is a part of a greater landscape of variables that make it so in some ways the outcome of that school is closer to predetermined than we would like to think. So from your perspective as someone who comes in and evaluates many aspects of the educational process how much of an impact do you find that policies and structures outside of schools have on student level outcomes within them so i think policies and structures outside of school have a large impact on student level outcomes and that's especially true when the outcome that we're looking at is proficiency levels or achievement levels this is one of the reasons why researchers usually include socioeconomic status as one of their one of the things that they consider controlling for in statistical models because they know that that explains a lot of the variation in student achievement um, as opposed to achievement growth, which may or may not be as strongly related to student 
socioeconomic backgrounds. And then we know that wealthier students have access to resources that make it easier for them to succeed in school. There's evidence that early childhood programs, food security and housing stability can all affect student performance. There's evidence from the moving to opportunity experiment, which gave vouchers to low-income families to move to better neighborhoods, led to substantial increases in children's earnings as adults and increases in college attendance. So it seems to me that any of these efforts that we have to alleviate poverty or the impact of poverty and improve the conditions that students live in would also have spillover effects on their educational outcomes, which is not to say that schools don't have any influence on student level outcomes or that we should stop trying to improve. Right. Right. And and that's where a lot of the, the tension is created because it, it, instead of, it's a social work thing, right? Instead mm-hmm. of saying, Yes, that's true, but what about this? Instead, it has to be a yes and. It has mm-hmm. to be, yes, these things are happening, and we who are working at the school level have to continue trying to push forward. And exactly. so your focus is on schools as organizations, which is a topic that I've always been very interested by. And due to the very dynamic way in which schools function, it can be really challenging to accurately assess what is going on from an operational standpoint. So when you go in to start your evaluation work, what are some of the first things that you look at to provide as much quick information as possible to help you better plan out the rest of that evaluation? Oh, that's a good question. Um, So I definitely agree with you that it's hard to accurately assess what's going on operationally. And if I'm trying to do some kind of quick landscape look at measures that are publicly available, you might look at a school report card, for example. And in looking at school report cards, I'm usually interested in growth over proficiency measures, for one thing. Because the growth measures tend to be less strongly related to poverty than static achievement measures like proficiency. So I think that growth does a better job of capturing whether a school practices are effective, at least in the narrow sense of improving student performance on standardized math and reading assessments. And then other things that we might be interested in are the stability and the experience of teaching staff. On average, experienced teachers tend to be more effective than novice teachers, and the stability of the staff kind of tells you something about the school leadership. So those can kind of be indicators of how well a school is doing operationally. And then on the harder to see side of things, there are the questions around whether staff engage collaboratively in planning, whether they're referencing student work products, any evidence of whether students are meeting learning goals and how they work around that. We know that teachers who work in more supportive professional environments improve more over time than teachers working in less supportive context. So I think paying attention to that aspect of school climate is really important. And then both as a parent and as somebody who values feedback and continuous improvement, I'd like to look for evidence of responsiveness to parent concerns, willingness to engage in conversations about what's working and what isn't, and effort to make families feel welcome in the school community. So when you look at growth, and this is really a question that might be closer to the weeds than I normally get, but I'm, I'm interested in, I'm interested in the question. So I went to one of the top performing high schools in Pennsylvania. And 
One of the things that would always grind the gears of some parents and some school administrators was that because we were already near the top in terms of proficiency measures, that our growth numbers could only be so large. So how do you differentiate when you go to into an evaluation? How do you know the schools that aren't growing because there's only so much more to grow? And do you think that districts and other other groups that base evaluation and sometimes dollar amounts and you can go down the line on those growth measures, do you think that they need to be more intelligent about, you know, where exactly that growth is happening, why it's happening and why some schools aren't growing, if that makes sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And there was a webinar from NWA the other day that talked about a report they had done looking at growth and it exactly the way you're describing. So to think about both whether or not growth on average is high, but also to think about what growth looks like for different groups of students within that school. Yes. So are they are they growing the lowest performers the most? Are they growing evenly across all different types of student performance? I absolutely think that people could be more thoughtful about the way they look at those measures. And the issue that you raise about being near the top in proficiency and not being able to grow much definitely an issue with most state standardized tests because they're not they tend not to be computer adaptive tests meaning you know what you probably are looking at in that case is whether or not the students met proficiency or you know at or above proficiency level right um and not necessarily looking first of all you're not necessarily looking at the score distribution but just whether or not they met this benchmark um if a school is meeting that benchmark for almost all of its students, it I think that going back to your comment about the both and, you could look at both achievement and growth. And if achievement is looking good for all of your students, then you don't have to be as worried, I don't think. Right. Um, in the cases, I mean, most of the schools that I have worked with, there's usually a lot of room to grow. Um, and it, it, it's more of a question of who are you, who are you succeeding the most with and, and can you move the needle for the group that you're not helping grow as much. Right. For sure. Yeah. I was just asking for someone that is doing this work all the time. I'm thinking of something like the um, CPS in Chicago has their SCORP score. So, you know, that is a bunch of variables that they throw in and then you as a school get graded from a, a level one plus all the way down to a level three. And in that formula, growth is, a very large factor, which makes sense. But when you look at some of the schools that are considered all in the same level, at the highest level, not all of those schools are created equally. And so I think that it comes back to what you were saying is that there does need to be an awareness of both that achievement piece paired with the growth component, for sure. <laughs> so based on all of that, schools are obviously complex. And that's why thinking about them from an operational standpoint, I think is exciting because it's one area where schools can grow 
potentially the, the, some we can see some of the largest growth that we have available to us is if we just start really honing in on some of the operational aspects of schooling. And so I know that I have some that come to mind, but you know, you pointed out things like making sure that staff stick around, that you are hiring staff that are highly qualified. Think about all those different components. What are some of the first things that come to your mind that school administrators could start doing today to make their schools operate more smoothly and subsequently lead to greater student achievement? So building on the feedback theme, I'd like to see school leaders create mechanisms for obtaining feedback from students, parents, and teachers, and developing routines for summarizing and acting on feedback to improve. I think the Chicago School Consortium has done some work around this with the, the school climate surveys. Yes. I think that information can be used to kind of foster a continuous feedback loop. I think that schools and district leaders can also help teachers become critical consumers of the materials in their classrooms, help them do things like diversify their classroom library so that it creates a more welcoming environment for all students. And then there's reports from both EdTrust and TNTP that call attention to a lack of rigor in classroom assignments. So school leaders could ensure that teachers are providing students opportunity to engage with grade level work throughout the school year. Also, something that's big is being proactive and sharing research on cognitive science principles that can be applied in the classroom. I know that Teams for Impact has a nice summary in its science of learning and that dispels some myth too um, that come up a lot in, in classrooms and in trying to apply research to teaching, which can be a little bit challenging. And then finally, one thing I would say is that schools and district administrators that are responsible for pairing student teachers with mentors should be asking the most effective teachers to be mentors. There's some research coming out of the University of Michigan that shows that that's a relatively low cost way to sort of improve outcome for novice teachers to make sure that the person that they were paired with during their student teaching is an effective teacher. So one one thing that comes to mind when you list a lot of those potential organizational moves out is it takes courage on the part of a school administrator to make some of those moves and push for things that are good for students. And so what I mean by that is, I mean, firstly, asking for feedback from all of those different partners it seems like an obvious thing, but also it's a scary thing. If, if you are doing this work every day and you are insecure about the amount that you are reaching out to parents and the amount that you are meeting parent concerns, that that can be a scary thing. But also when we talk about some of the, some of the changes that we need to make based on research, but also based on an increased awareness of just how typically entrenched some of our curricula and other aspects of the educational process are steeped in a very traditionally white, traditionally elite structure, it can be a very hard thing for an administrator to be confident enough to take risks 
to say, hey, I'm going to allot these dollars to make sure that we bring in this diversity of text, and I trust you to be able to to run with it once we buy an entire new um, library for your classroom. Or it takes a lot to be able to say, I recognize that you are an incredible teacher and I need you to mentor some of our novice teachers or especially people that are in student teaching roles. Having effective mentors for them is huge too. So what have you seen in your time working with and around school leaders that give you confidence that generally we as an educational system are up to the task of making some of those moves? And then what is one either data point or one story that comes to mind that gives you pause about just how challenging it can be as an administrator in this day and age? Those are great questions. I do see a lot of attention these days towards addressing inequities and educational opportunities that I think can be leveraged for school leaders to take this stand. So knowing that reporters and researchers are looking into things like um, disparities in school discipline or access to AP courses, that's something they might be able to use as a lever to say to staff or to say to people above them who might be resisting, this is what we think we need to do to help our students accomplish great things. Um, And I agree with you that there really needs to be space to be vulnerable in order to truly use the feedback that you're getting. You have to be willing to hear that something is not working. You have to be willing to acknowledge that to some degree and One of the challenges with that is that we operate in this environment where schools are being judged based on their outcomes. Yes. I think they have a very hard line to walk there. And there are there are cases where schools might be at risk of being shut down because their performance isn't high enough. And my concern is that they may be a school that's making a lot of progress and making a lot of growth and what they're doing is actually effective, but it takes years. It will take years for the students who are starting out well below proficiency for them to catch up. And we're impatient in the political environment. We want to see outcomes now. We want to see outcomes next year. Yes. So that, I think, is the the biggest challenge that administrators face is, is showing evidence that what you're doing is moving the needle in the right direction and convincing people that you will get there. It will just take a few years. Right. And it's this idea that, you know, we talk a lot about how politics has started to look a lot like how like sports coverage happens. And I think that sometimes schools, I mean, as ridiculous as it seems to say, end up functioning in the same way. Like you hire a principal and even if, like you said, the steps that need to be taken are going to take time. What ends up happening is you end up in this pressure cooker where you say, well, I need to make it, even if I know that it's going to take seven years to really implement the things that I'm implementing effectively, I need Mm -hmm. to make it look in year two as though great strides are happening just so I can make sure that I'm taken care of and that I'm okay. And so Mm -hmm. I think you're right that that puts an added pressure on a lot of what's going on. And that kind of leads me into 
something that I think is maybe I just don't see it considered or talked about as much as it should be. But I, I think it's an important question to think about. So we all know if you look at research, if you spent just a few hours in the research, you would see that schools in lower income communities typically have more novice teachers who are greater. I don't I'll call them flight risks. That's a rude term, but I'll use it. Um, (laughs) I think that you also have students that have greater needs of support. And so we know that at the teacher level and at the student level, that schools in certain communities need greater supports. And one of the biggest changes that we could see in these schools is to get more veteran teachers to provide more supports, all of that. But I'm interested in your perspective on administrators in these schools. So there are gaps in terms of what, like for me in in Chicago, you could drive 30 minutes north of where I'm at and end up at Lake Forest, which is one of the most affluent communities in Illinois. And you can look at their teaching staff and the amount of years that they have on staff, all of that. And then you can drive 30 minutes south and hit a, a school in like the, even like the, the near south side and look at those years of experience, all that. When it comes to administrators, do you think that there's just as large of a gap in terms of effectiveness of administration at these schools as there is in terms of um, student level supports and also um, teacher level effectiveness? So the research on principal effectiveness, I think, is actually relatively nascent. Like there's not a whole lot of really rigorous work done on that. And it it's all tied up, right? You might say that the school effect is actually a principal effect or the principal effect plus the teacher's effect. But the principals are the principals arguably have an influence on the teachers who then in turn drive the school effect. So there's this complicated thing to unpack. who is really responsible for what's going on in a school. I will say that I think that there's evidence that the relationship between school poverty and achievement is very strong, but the relationship between school poverty and growth is not. And, And so what we see if we look at the growth data is that there are high poverty schools that are very, very effective and high poverty schools that are not so effective. And the same is true for the wealthier schools. So that's both good and bad news, right? We need to address the variation and start thinking about what the low growth schools could be doing better. But there's, there is evidence that it happens and that um, there are school leaders and, and teachers in those schools who are doing a great job and really helping their students make strong gains. So I think that with the managers and the, the school leaders, I think the same issue that happens with the teachers can come into play. We know that teachers have a preference, for example, to work close to where they grew up. And if you think about low-income districts might produce relatively few college graduates, and so they don't have as many people returning home to teach there. And if they're not teaching there, they're probably not becoming administrators there either. So I think that could play out in the same way um, at the school leadership level where low-income districts might be at a disadvantage in being able to be strategic about who they hire and promote to become school leaders. But I do think there's a lot 
that can be done and that is being done to help the students in those schools. I think some of it really, it probably needs to happen from a higher level, right? Like the, the states and the federal government maybe need to be paying more attention to the fact that there are these inequities. Um, even the Edville report that came out the other day that talks about the inequities of districts that are right next to each other, you yes. know, and some of them are, are spending way more per pupil than the others. And that's not something that the district or the school has control over necessarily. Right. So uh, all of that being said, I'll get you out on this question. So what are some signs of hope that you see that schools are generally becoming more equitable and also more effective with regards to the operational and the managerial quality of the, uh, of what goes on in their walls? I see the increasing attention and shining that light on inequity and educational opportunities is really what gives me hope. The fact that researchers and reporters are investigating these disparities, whether it's in school discipline or school finance, um, it, in terms of course offerings and advanced classes, there's much more attention to that. I think there are a lot of efforts underway to diversify the teaching workforce, which I think will be helpful. Um, yeah, so I would say those are those are some of the things that, that give me hope that we're moving in the right direction. I think attention to what is going on in the classrooms and not just on paper on a test at the end of the year is really important, thinking about how we get there. Great. Well, Kara, thank you so much for joining me today and engaging in this conversation. It's important work and we need people like you that are able to bring a lens of evaluation paired with a lens of equity to the work. And so I really appreciate all you do and thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Kara for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so grateful to her for coming on and to you for listening. The thing about evaluation is that we need school and district leaders to hear the ways that things can be done differently. So please share this episode widely so that it can find the ears of the people who have control over whether evaluation and organization can be used for good or for harm. We'll be back with episodes every Wednesday for the foreseeable future. So please make sure you have subscribed on whatever podcast app you use. I'm really excited about what we have planned for the next year. Until next time, class dismissed.